Hello, I'm Amy Stevenson, and this is The Human CEO. In each episode, we'll be meeting with CEOs and senior leaders to understand their approach to leadership, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. We'll also be asking what they feel it takes to be a great leader. That, for me, is the kind of key to this. It's how our staff have got really highly engaged at Seafish. It's why they've voted for us as being one of the best companies to, to work for, because they have that autonomy to kind of work the way they work best. Fairly simple stuff, really. Welcome to The Human CEO. I'm your host, Amy Stevenson, and today I'm joined by Marcus Coleman. Marcus is the CEO of Seafish, a public body supporting the £10 billion UK seafood industry. Marcus was appointed in January 2016 and is proud to lead the Seafish organisation. He's responsible for the 72 Seafish staff who provide their expertise and support to the industry and the four UK fisheries administrations. With over 25 years of professional experience, Marcus joins us today to share his insight as a leader and a human CEO. Thank you for joining us today, Marcus. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for inviting me along. Yeah, I'm looking forward to speaking. So can you tell us a little bit about Seafish and you know what you're working towards as an organisation, please? Yeah, Seafish is uh, it's part of government, actually. We're an arm's length body, part of the DEFRA family, Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and our role is to support the UK seafood sector um, from, the, from the, we'd like to say, from the net to the plate, from the fishermen all the way through the processing sector into retail or into food service, which wherever the industry needs some support from, from a body like us, we're, we're there for them. Fantastic. And, and as a leader of that kind of organisation, having come through the challenges that we've just experienced, the challenges that we're up against now, what are your key, you know, key challenges? What are you up against at the moment? So, so yeah, our, our organisation, we, we're quite a small organisation. We're one of DEFRA's smallest arm's length bodies. We're only about 80 staff, but we have staff all over the UK. And we have a main office in Grimsby and another main office in Edinburgh. Um, and from those two centres, we can service the industry. But we also have people down in the southwest, in Wales and in Northern Ireland. Um, and really, it's it, the, the issues that the industry are grappling with, whether that's kind of um, climate change, for example, or um, the reputation of the industry. The industry gets a lot of criticism, so mm-hmm. we're, we're there to support in that sense. International trade is really important. The incoming and outgoing of seafood, we, we eat um, what most of the, our imports are what we eat and most of what we catch, we export. So it's a strange okay. twist, just it, tastes and markets and history, etc. Or labour force is another big issue for our guys. So um, wherever the industry needs some support in, in that respect, uh, they often turn to us as an independent voice that can sort of support them with insight and advice and guidance and, and can publish the, the findings of that and try to support the industry in the way that we can. Um, the industry itself is, is struggling, like most other industries, with rising costs yeah. in um, raw materials and energy. So that's a big challenge. The labour availability, the industry was heavily populated with European nationals, and that all changed with a combination of Brexit and COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, logistics challenges, it, seafood is the most globally traded commodity. So all of those shipping yeah. containers... Um, around the world uh, and, and trying to get vessels around the world. Very, very challenging at the moment. COVID, again, has made that more difficult. Mm-hmm. But we have an, init- uh, an additional challenge in the sector, which is to do with the Russian-Ukraine situation. And most of the whitefish that um, that people enjoy around the world actually originates from Russia. Sort of 30 to 40% of the right. whitefish in circulation on the planet 
comes through Russia. So if we as a nation or, or others like the Americans, etc., uh, are to impose um, restrictions on the use of that Russian fish, that, that is going to cause a big problem in the, in the sector generally for mm-hmm. the availability and prices, etc. So lots of things going on in seafood. It's always a, a, a busy space. Yeah, many many of those things you wouldn't even think about as a consumer. It wouldn't necessarily cross your mind. That That's right. The, challenges. The, yeah. the work that needs to go into, you know, buying your, your fillets in um, Marks and Spencers on the, on yes. the counter there. Um, the work that goes into making sure that they are prepared and fresh and come from responsibly sourced um, options is, is quite considerable, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And bizarre that everything we catch, well, almost everything we catch, we export, and most of what we eat, we import. That seems... Yeah, yeah so most of, your fish chips, most of the fish and chips, for example, um, mm-hmm. comes from Norway or Iceland. Mm-hmm. Uh, tends to be frozen at sea mm-hmm. and then imported in, in packs into fish and chip shops because it's consistent. You know, that your, your mm-hmm. fish and chip shop doesn't want to be messing about with all sorts of different sizes it just wants consistency so mm-hmm. that's tended to be the trend it's not exclusively there are there is there are fish and chip shops who use uh, uk court cod mm-hmm. haddock etc but um, most of them are frozen at sea and brought in from iceland and norway and most of the fish that we catch the biggest volume of fish we catch is mackerel in okay. this country and of course mackerel it is consumed in this country but again it's it's more appreciated in other markets who will yeah. get, will pay a higher price for it so a lot of our fishermen will they will they will land into places like Denmark or Norway to mm-hmm. to reach other markets elsewhere. So it is a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. And and in terms of your own journey, then was it always the case that you were going to be looking at a chief exec seat, or was it quite an organic process? Were you always identified as a leader early on? Or? No, I don't think so. Um, no, it's been an evolution, really. I started off in consultant consultancy, mm-hmm. sort of engineering consultancy initially, um, and then, as many people do, went on to do an MBA. Um, that sort of raised my eyes a little bit about other organisations, and I went mm-hmm. into more general management consulting with PA Consulting. Uh-huh. Um, and and then it was then, really, from which is often the case, I think your, your last consulting job is your next proper job, um, as I sort of feel. And I... I had an opportunity to lead an organisation. It was quite a small organisation, um, but it was a, a kind of industry association leading lots of other um, players in a, in a particular sector. And that was my first sort of opportunity to, to lead and be a leader. Um, we're talking sort of around the 2000s, 2002, I suppose, that sort of time. And it just kind of snowballed from there, really. Went on to, to you know, take leadership roles in other places. Um uh, and it's evolved, and I, and I guess I've, I, you know, my ideas of of what it is to be a leader and what what's important have sort of evolved mm-hmm. over those times. Um, and I was fortunate in those early days to to see lots of other organisations because of the consulting roles yes, that yes. I had. I was in and out of clients, um, as you will be. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to see people, you got to look at workplaces, you got to sense the culture. Yeah. It, and, it, and I found it quite interesting um, how how that was, and it, and it kind of framed kind of what I thought was important. Um, uh, so so yeah, it's, it's an evolution, I guess. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And I noticed your MBA was an international MBA. You went was it over in France that you went to study? Yeah, I was lucky enough to um, to get a sort of scholarship there. Uh, I think it was the the Sainsbury Foundation, David Sainsbury. Mm-hmm. He had been to Japan on a trade mission, I think. 
and had um, seen that in Japan they were training their engineers to be better business people. And so he ran, he came back to the UK and he put something together with the Royal Academy of, of uh, Engineering uh, and gave engineers like myself uh, an opportunity to become better business people. And part of the part of the deal was you needed to do it in a European business school. So um, to foster those sort of international ties. It's funny how it, it, it goes because I, I didn't really, almost as soon as I'd done that MBA, I left mm-hmm. the engineering profession, which was probably <laughs> not what Lord Sainsbury had in mind. But um, it's funny how it's come around years later, the international nature of seafood to where mm-hmm. I've ended up um, yeah. and those international relations and the considerations you know, I do still think about that work from the MBA all these years later. So it's interesting how really it valuable. how life pans out. Absolutely, absolutely. And so previously you mentioned that you'd seen a lot of leaders in your consultancy work and you'd got an idea of how you would define a great leader, which leads me nicely into my next question in terms of your perception of a great leader. Does well, that, what, are they defined by characteristics specifically? Yeah, I, I, maybe I'll, I'll come back to that. The, the thing that I noticed mm. in many of the organisations that i was fortunate enough to wander into was how unhappy people were in okay. in many of those organizations and how uh, and how restricted the workplace seemed to be uh, and how regimented and organized mm-hmm. it was and that was the thing that i really thought does it really have to be this way uh, does it really have to be a nine to five existence? Does it really have to be an office block mm-hmm. in a in a soulless town in the outskirts of London? Does it does is that is that what life is? You know, mm-hmm. and and that was the biggest thing for me that that I wanted to ensure, try to ensure that I would when if I had the opportunity to kind of break that yes. that that yeah. kind of mold. Um, and that, and that's what I do now. That is what that is the sort of the driving force behind what we've done at, at Seafish. Um, and, and to answer your question, I, I think where I've had a lot of success is by engaging my staff in in whichever setting that has been, mm-hmm. uh, and and together working out what's the best way of doing this. What's the yes. best way of you giving us your best work? Uh-huh. What what is it? What are the the, the combinations of, of being in a location or being away from the office or the technology, the training, the hours you keep? What's what's the best way for you as an individual to work, or you and your team mm-hmm. to work? And and having giving people that autonomy to kind of shape that the way they want to. So that for me is the kind of key to this. It's how our staff have got really highly engaged at Seafish. It's why they've voted for us as being one of the best companies to to work for because they have that autonomy to kind of work the way they work best fairly simple stuff really but it just surprised me how many organizations are still so rigid the pandemic has released everybody in in a Mm -hmm. sense it's it's broken the the old model of work um, in many organizations so um i do chuckle when i hear organizations you know saying oh we're all back in the office now oh right okay well great so Presumably, they'll have seen massive uplifts in productivity, will they? No. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's an interesting dynamic. Um, but that's 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 where I'm coming from. Yeah. It's, it's, so I guess it's about understanding how to get the best out of people and for them to be happiest whilst doing so. Yeah. We, we all have uh, stresses and strains in our, in our life. We've all got mm-hmm. things going on. Yeah. And I think... It never ceases to amaze me how 
the scrapes that people get into, the challenges that they've got, that actually a few years ago, you wouldn't hear about them much. People yes. keep themselves to themselves, keep their own business to themselves. But it would inevitably be really impacting on their well-being and their ability to do their job if they're constantly worrying about something else or constantly compromised by something. One of the one of the people I worked with uh, in the job before this, when we, we we released people to kind of work how they wanted to work, he came to me and he said he said um, he'd never taken his young lad to school because oh. his young lad started at eight forty five, and his mindset was that he needed to be in the office at about the same time. So he couldn't do it. So he couldn't do it. And I thought, to, and, and this was only 10 minutes around the corner. Mm-hmm. And yet that was his mindset that I have to be here because that's my job and I'm, that's my hours. And yeah. and you think, well, just cut the guy some slack. And, you know, and he was over the moon. First time he'd ever taken his child to school. So what is that about? Why is the workplace so restrictive that it can't even bend to make some quite small um, adjustments that actually mean a huge amount to people? Um, yes. and, and, and I found that time and time again, it was only really small little adjustments that people really, really appreciate. And in return, yeah, yeah. they will but work much better, much less stress in their world, much more able to cope with all of the things that are going on. So that's where, we, that's where we're coming from at Seafish. Fantastic. It's about building that psychological safety as well, isn't it? So that that guy's got the confidence to come to you and say, actually, I'd really like to take my son to school. Yeah, absolutely. The answer is always, of course, you know, mm-hmm. crack on. The, um, the uh, real proponents of this, the, the eureka moment I had was uh, that book, um, Why Work Sucks and How to Fix It, okay, by yeah. Jodie Thompson and Callie Ressler. And that changed my outlook on, uh, on how a workplace could operate. Mm-hmm. And um, I was all over that. I thought their row system, their results-only work environment, um, that concept of defining work by the results rather than the time you put in yes. was seemingly very straightforward, mm-hmm. but not many companies do it. No, um, so we, we trialled that uh, at a place I worked with some spectacular results in terms of productivity, uh, personal well-being, um, quality of the work. And then we're now doing that at Seafish as well. So... That's, that's the system that we've operated since 2017. So everybody's results are defined in a much more frequent way, in a, in a kind of monthly basis with their manager. And then how they deliver their results is entirely up to them with their manager. Um, and, you know, I've got, I've got at least one person who is out of the UK at the moment okay. for months on end because mm-hmm. she is an international um uh, with us and um, she can do her job for internationally. She can do it from remotely like anyone else can. So she's home seeing friends, family, and at the same time turning in a great piece of work for us. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's opened up the, the sort of people that we can recruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we no longer have to have them based either at Edinburgh or Grimsby. We can have them yes. anywhere in the UK or anywhere in the world, frankly. So, so that's really interesting. And um and what they're doing is far more visible and far more accountable yes. and, um, and work and seems to work for them as well. So probably far more rewarding than any arbitrary KPIs that you could set previously. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who cares if you're in the office for 37 and a half hours? Who, what does that mean? Yes. It means nothing. Yeah. It means yeah. absolutely nothing. 
absolutely. And and in terms of your style, then your approach to that, you mentioned being influenced by that book. But where does your leadership style come from? Was there a piece of advice someone offered you early on, or did you experience something that has helped shape your approach to leadership? Um, I I um, certainly always try to see the positive in things. Mm-hmm. There's, um, there's a guy I work with, bless him, he, he passed away very suddenly, a um, chap called Stephen Bailiff, um, who uh, I think he was a former Capgemini consultant, and uh, he and I were heading up um, Compass Point Business Services, uh, as a local, local authority, jointly owned company. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he had a remarkable knack of, even in the, the seemingly the darkest of situations, seeing seeing the positive in a particular situation you know it could be really quite challenging and quite difficult but he would somehow manage to find the kind of you know well at least we know where we are now you know at least at least we know what the climate's thinking when when we know how much the fine was for you know whatever it was he'd always and and i think it wasn't just sort of superficial i think it was his way of ensuring he had people's Mm buy-in to solving the problem Yes. You know, yeah. if 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 you go in heavy handed and the blame culture and, you know, looking for heads to roll and all of that sort of thing, yeah. you don't actually get very good collaboration around the, you know, trying to resolve the thing. Because the yeah. thing that's gone wrong usually needs the same people to sort it out. You know, yeah. it's not like there's a magic other team that are going to suddenly land and sort out the issue. So he was always very keen to kind of put people at ease and go, look, you know, okay, this is not right. It needs sorting. Mm-hmm. Let's we'll have a look at why it went wrong before, but yeah, you know, let's. Uh, so I, I do take a bit of that. Um, I have an expression: it's only work. Okay. It's, it's kind of you know, it's only work, uh, and there are more important things in life than than work. So let's yeah. just put this in perspective, uh, and, and I guess that's my way of, of being the same as Stephen used to be uh, with people. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. we'll, you know, we'll get through this. We'll, we'll sort yes. it out. Yeah. So uh, so that that's live with me. Another. Um, a board member of, um, uh, bless her, she's also passed away just recently, Claire Dodson, actually. Claire Dodson, she was um, a senior executive in many uh, NHS trusts in the Northeast mm-hmm. uh, and then went on to be a non-exec director in a number of different organisations, I think Job Centre Plus uh, notably. Um, and so she was a, a, a civil servant through and through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had this expression, gripping it, grip it and sort it, Marcus, you know, and, okay. and she was, there was, there were things I think that would come along that just needed, you know, okay, you need to get hold of this, get the facts and make a firm decision about, and I think there's time for that as well mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in certain circumstances where enough, enough prevaricating and enough thinking, well, just, just grip it and sort it. You know, yes. and, I, and I think that's that, that's another sort of you know. There's when those times come, I do think of Claire and uh, and her advice there. Yeah, so you do you pick up these things from people that you work alongside. You do um, indeed, and uh, you sometimes don't realise you, you're getting it at the time. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's osmosis almost sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, 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 fantastic. And then so you already, I think in part you've answered this question, but if there was a sort of a Marcus, as you were maybe 20 years ago or someone that's starting out in a leadership career or someone that's looking to follow in your footsteps, is there advice beyond what you've already offered that you would particularly be keen to deliver to them? A couple of people have asked me, how how come I'm sitting in, in the seat that I'm sitting in? Okay. And that's a good question sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, how have I got here? And, and I, my response to them has been, I think people need to take a few risks okay. with, with their career. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think be surprised, or don't be surprised, actually, when you put yourself forward for something, that, that actually you've got as good a chance as anybody Mm-hmm. at, at fulfilling the, the the role or the opportunity in front of you but you certainly won't have a chance if you don't put yourself forward great advice and I, and I think I think to myself you know when I was looking you know at that MBA back in the day um you know it seemed like a wow how can I get on that program you know but I just applied and I got on you know and and towards the end of my time with PA consulting and and you know my last client was my next job and you know do you want to come and do this for us and it's like yeah. well I'm on a trajectory with PA and quite enjoy doing that. But actually, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go. Why not? Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and and this role, Seafish, I I saw this role advertised. Um, I, I don't know why it came across my 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 desk, but on the face of it, I don't have any seafood experience. I don't have a food sector experience prior to this this role. Uh, and I said to the people dealing with it. They they called me because I had to go through the the, the pack to get the. Mm-hmm. They called me to say, look, we think you're a good candidate. And I said, what? Well, I don't I don't think I am actually. <laughs> and they said, no no no, we need somebody who doesn't come with any baggage, who doesn't come from any particular sector mm-hmm. within the within the the, the 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 sector already. We need some fresh thinking. We need some fresh ideas. And actually, with your background and your the way you approach work, you you might just be what we're looking for. So I think sometimes it's just you, or you almost don't know what you, you don't know. You don't actually know what people are really looking for. Mm-hmm. So I would um, certainly advocate sort of putting yourself out there um, and and giving it a go. The worst that can happen is you get a thanks very much, but no thanks, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so that would be, you know, in terms of getting opportunities, I think, you know, taking a few risks and putting mm-hmm. yourself out there. Uh, but but once you're in the role, I think this this co-production thing is not to be underestimated. I think you know there are a lot of bright people in organisations who are crying out to be asked about yes. how to improve their workplace or the work that they do, but never get asked. They they don't get engaged. <clears throat> management does um, tend to over, overlook and think that it's the preserve of the management ranks, when actually, you know really good practice and and how people want to work and the performance of, of people is going to come from them yes. being able to organize their work and, and fulfill that work in a way that suits them best and mm-hmm. you're never going to know that from the from the c-suite in the corner office you're never going to know that that um james has not taken his kid to school in three years and he's really cut up about it you're never going to know that yeah so you have to find a way of, of engaging people and finding out what's what's what they need you know mm-hmm. fantastic and in terms of the leaders that you've been um i don't know exposed to i guess in the past you mentioned clay you mentioned stephen are yeah. there leaders sort of past or present famous or otherwise beyond those two that you particularly admire and if so what is it about them there's a chap called um peter hendy I should say Sir Peter Hendy, OBE now. And I came across Peter, um, he was head of surface transport, head of the London buses mm-hmm. at Transport for London. Uh, and, and in my consulting days, I, I had a, an assignment working, supporting TFL. Mm-hmm. And I came across Peter, and, and Peter was uh, um, 
really passionate about transport and buses. Mm -hmm. uh, it, he went on to be Commissioner for Transport for London um, under both Ken Livingstone and Boris Johnson. And then um, he's now Chairman of Network Rail. And uh, But Peter just loves driving buses. That's his... <laughs> That's where he came from. He was a graduate trainee with, with London Transport back in the day. So what I, what I liked about Peter was he had this underlying passion <laughs> for transport as a thing, yeah. as, a, as a force for good. <laughs> and I think, I think having something like that does inspire the people around you, you know, that, yeah. that this, is, this is worth having. It does this for the economy, for communities. <laughs> You know, it's a it's a really powerful thing, and at the at the other side of things, uh, and sorry, and he had a, he had a passion for the people working in it as well, for the bus drivers, for the yeah. the garage mechanics, for the conductors, for the you know, he had a passion and understood where they were coming from because he'd been down at the depot level. Uh -huh. but at the same time, he's having to deal with people like Ken Livingstone and 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 before my time, but later Boris Johnson, mm -hmm. and he was able to manage them too. He was yep. able, so he could see through the eyes of the people who were really at the coalface doing the job, but he could also handle his political masters as well. And I thought having that sort of um, almost like comedian-esque mm -hmm. skill was really quite something. Um, and I, I find that in my roles, I, I need to have, you know, not as high profile as Sir Peter by any means, but... At the one end of things, we've got, you know, operatives, fishermen, et cetera, at the coalface doing pretty challenging work in pretty, you know, difficult conditions. At the other end, at the other end we've got uh, fisheries ministers and, and, and beyond who are setting policy and, yeah. you, know, um, you know, laying down the rules of the, of the land in terms of fishing quotas and, and the sanctions and, you know, who knows what else. So... You, you, you've got to be able, and, and one of the things that Seafish does really well, it, it, you've got to be able to convey the understanding and the, the perspective from, from one end of the supply chain to, to the other sort of policy setting, rule setting kind of um, end of the spectrum. And having an entity like Seafish is, is really important to be able to connect those two things together, you know, to, to be the sort of... Um, uh, oil in in the engine, if you like. So, so yeah. So, so Peter, I I, I watched from a distance. I, I was only in contact with him for a matter of months, really, mm -hmm. on that. But I've watched him go on in his career. Um, yeah. But I, I always, and I, I presume he's done so well because of that, because he's had this passion for the the thing he knows about, and at the same time, the ability to engage at all different levels. So, yes, um, it's good. We try at Seafish to develop um, a passion for seafood. You know, mm -hmm. we we uh, we we recognise that seafood is a really really healthy option for people, uh -huh. but it's also good for business. Um, uh, if I look at Grimsby, there's a, there's about sixty or seventy businesses employing about five thousand people in one of the most deprived parts of the UK, mm -hmm. um, and so it's not just good for business; it's good for the community as well. Yeah. Um, and we also like to say it's good for the planet because it's probably the most climate friendly, lower carbon. Um, source of meat protein that there is far better than beef and chicken okay. and pork etc so we we develop our own and the industry develops its own kind of passion for for, mm. for seafood and it's um it is quite an addictive sector to work in actually it's many people come into it uh, and are bewildered by its complexity but um but love being involved with it so yeah. 
so yeah we're we're on a mission i guess fantastic and that's that's part of the engagement isn't it if you can communicate that mission and your people get behind it that's absolutely that's the way forward yeah absolutely and and so i'm always really interested in what leaders are reading or consuming so be it a podcast whether it's an audio book or or a book um what kind of content are you consuming has there been a book that's been particularly influential in the past is there a book that you would recommend to someone that was looking to follow in your footsteps or indeed your peers well i would i'll give another shout out to callie and jody and mm-hmm. um why work sucks and how to fix it that yeah. will that changed my life um i i would suggest it or if you're in a position to change the way in which your workforce operates or thinks mm-hmm. that read that Okay. That will be that will blow you away. The the person who pointed me to that, the author that pointed me to Callie and Jody, um, was Dan Pink. Okay. Um, and and I'm a big fan of Dan Pink. I've got Dan's latest, um, "The Power of Regret: How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward." Ah, I've so read that one. Yeah. His his previous books were about motivation, what what motivates mm. people in the workforce, and his previous uh, drive, the truth about what motivates us at work or something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that. That's uh, part of that is about autonomy uh, and purpose, and yes. that that sort of directed me towards Kelly and Jody. And, and uh, it's a bit cliche these days, but these days, but I'm also a big fan of Simon Sinek. I mean, yes. I think a lot of people are. So, The Infinite Game uh-huh. is, I think, is his latest. It's been out a while now, but those of us who are working in um, in a kind of public sector environment know that we are on an infinite game. Mm-hmm. We are, our organisations don't win. <laughs> they don't see if yeah, it doesn't yeah, win yeah. anything. It doesn't, uh-huh. it doesn't be the best public body. It, it's there to provide an ongoing service. Yes. Um, that, that rocks and it rolls. And along comes COVID and along comes the Ukraine situation and yeah. along comes Greenpeace and along comes, so, you know, you're there as a constant to help the industry to navigate those things. So, getting that mindset that infinite it's not about winning losing being the best or whatever so i thought simon's simon's latest was uh, particularly interesting so those are the sort of things i i look at i'm also quite a big fan of the um uh, i think it's the world of business ideas uh, Wobi. there's okay. an online um, suite of uh, conferences um that are organized by i think it's Wobi, uh and they get some terrific speakers there that these days it used to be a big get together in london or wherever um but these days all online and um you can sign up there for uh, 150 dollars or whatever and hear some of the biggest names in business thinking and uh, hr thinking um so i do i dip into those every now and again if i see something that's particularly interesting um yeah that's a good source of inspiration Fantastic. Thank you for sharing those. And, and in terms of Seafish, so what's going to be happening over the next six, nine, 12 months? What's on your desk? What's exciting that you can share with us today? Yeah, so we, as, a, as a public body, we're required, as, as everyone is, uh, to do a strategic review of the organisation from time to time. And we've just done that uh, and come through with um, some some a strong mandate for, for taking the organisation forward. Mm-hmm. We asked that difficult question, do you still need us? Okay. Uh, we're a levy body, so we're funded by levy from the industry. Okay. So it's always a bit of a dangerous question to ask, but we have to ask it. And uh, the answer was yes, um, overwhelmingly. Uh, and they gave us a series of, of priorities that they want us to, to work on. This is the industry, our industry stakeholders. Mm-hmm. 
And so uh, we're just in the process of sort of um, of translating those uh, th- that, that sort of consultation process. And over the next six to 12 months or so, this, this financial year, I guess, through to April next year, we're making adjustments to the way in which we operate and looking at those particular priorities and planning the work that we're going to be doing there. Okay. Um, the industry have also encouraged us to reform the levy that we that we get, make it more fair and equitable. There were some exclusions from it, um, and it hasn't been reviewed since 1981 or something. So yeah. it needs a bit of attention. So we're going through a process of looking at that. So we hope to emerge sort of springtime next year with a, with this new mandate, um, a, a new kind of funding settlement and a, and a sort of refreshed and energised workforce with a whole load of new activities, building on what we've done already to date, but, but really getting more focused on these priority areas that the industry want us to look at. So quite a good sort of shot in the arm, actually, for the organisation. Yes. Um, and, um, and again, in the spirit that we've done previously, we're, we're going to be engaging our staff in working through each of those priorities and what what do they think needs to be done mm-hmm. um, let's not duplicate what others are doing let's find new ground um, so yeah looking looking good actually good fantastic well thank you for sharing your story with us Marcus it's been really great to have a conversation here all about it so thank you for your time thanks thanks for your interest in seafish it's uh, been a pleasure talking about it and uh, good luck with the rest of these podcasts thank you